Well, good morning, Cornerstone. It is good to see everyone. Somebody told me it was supposed to rain this weekend, and uh, I guess they were right about that. So I hope trust that everyone is staying dry with all this rain that we've recently had. If you're new, my name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bibles to the Gospel of John. We are back in the Gospel of John. John chapter 19 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, or maybe you forgot to charge your Bible, then you are welcome to borrow one from us. It's under the chair in front of you. It's black, and you'll find our reading today on page 905. John chapter 19, page 905 of the church Bible. We're going to read from verse 1 all the way down to verse 16. Then I'll pray, and we'll get to work. All in total, total, it should be around 45 minutes or so. John chapter 19, starting with verse 1. This is God's Word. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged Him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him and saying, Hail, Jesus, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man! When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You won't speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you? And authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. And the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we ask for your help now. 
as we seek to understand what it is that we have just read. As we seek to understand why it is what we have just read. Why would the Lord of glory allow himself to be so shamefully treated by such wicked men? And so I ask, Father, this morning that you would be kind to me again as you've been so often in my life and enable me to serve your people well this morning, to explain your holy word and with your Spirit's help to apply it to their life so that we can see and behold our King and become like Him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Do you know what we do with kings who step outside of their kingdom? Shenzi, the hyena, said to Simba, the lion cub, and future king. Simba was the son of Mufasa, king of the Pride Lands. And against his father's warnings, Simba had ventured outside of his father's realm, taking a friend to an elephant graveyard. And there they found themselves in danger encircled by a pack of hyenas. They tried to escape, but the hyenas gave chase. And they pinned the lion cubs against a wall. And just at the moment before they are devoured by the hyenas, Mufasa, the king, swoops in and saves the day. It's one of my favorite scenes from Disney's The Lion King. A pack of hyenas confident that they were beyond the reach of the king ready to pounce on the king's son, learned quickly they were never outside of the reach of the king. Well, like a pack of hyenas, enemies of Christ encircle him, hoping to devour the supposed son of God. Confident of their own authority, confident that they get to decide the Lord's fate, they gnash at him, they mock him, They sit in judgment over him, and they call for his execution. The events of Jesus' sentencing that we have just read are written in such a way to show us, the reader, that while it seems the Lord is a helpless victim, that he is powerless like a prey to these wicked men, these events are being moved along by the very hand of God himself. Those who believe themselves to be in authority are actually under authority. Their victim is the one who's calling the shots. Those in power are actually the pawns. And they're fulfilling centuries-old prophecies that those who set themselves against the Lord and His anointed will be crushed like pottery. They're only doing what the Lord Himself had predestined to take place. Three hyenas in this unholy pack. One, the chief priests, seizing upon the opportunity they finally had to do away with this Jesus. And the spineless Roman governor, Pilate, politicking to the crowd. And then there are the soldiers, those nameless, faceless cowards hiding behind their uniforms, then they mocking and beating the Lord Jesus. John wants us to see Jesus and to understand that He is not being dragged to the cross, but He's going there willingly of His own accord. No one is taking His life, He's laying it down. This is the reason He came, to give His life as a ransom for many, a ransom demanded as a payment for God's justice for sin. And John wants us to see that we are not innocent bystanders. We are not paying customers in the audience of this wicked play. Now, we may not have swung the hammer that drove the nail through His sinless hands, 
But as the song we sing goes, it was our sin that held him there. The sinless Savior goes to the cross willingly because of the great love with which he loved us. Demonstrating the riches of his mercy, the glory of his grace for hell-deserving sinners like us. And John wants us to be assured that the one who has endured such painful rejection has done so, so that all who are in him would receive such wonderful acceptance in God. This passage appears in three scenes. We'll work through them in succession. The first is Pilate presenting Jesus to the crowd, flogged, beaten, a crown of thorns, and wrapped in a purple robe. The second scene is Pilate learning of Jesus' true authority. Who has true authority in this event? And lastly, the people who have their way sentencing Jesus to death. So you're welcome to follow along in the backside of your worship guide. We'll begin with the first scene in verse 1 in chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to him, See, I'm bringing out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. We've met this Pontius Pilate before. Back in chapter 18, he's the Roman governor of the providence of Judea, and he's a spineless politician. He, he didn't come to power as the governor by his own merit. He married the granddaughter of the emperor Augustus, and he spent a decade or so ruling Judea. Historians tell us it must have been an unhappy 10 years in Judea. He attempted some reforms in that land. He attempted some changes in that land. And all of them, almost all of them, were met by revolts and protests. He often caved and stopped his reforms by the stubborn will of the people. The Bible's account of him is very much in line with Roman history. In chapter 18, Pilate makes it clear to the chief priests that he does not want to deal with this Jesus. It's early in the morning. It's during the festival time. Probably the city is full. Probably there's lots of things on Pilate's plate. And he wants nothing to do with the rabble that has come to him. But Pilate learns very quickly, this rabble is out for blood. They want Jesus dead. They can't do it to themselves Because they don't have that authority, they know Pilate does, and so they bring Jesus to Pilate. And so Pilate questions Jesus, and probably finds the Lord Jesus a little strange, maybe a little arrogant, but not guilty of insurrection, not worthy of capital punishment. And so Pilate declares Jesus innocent. The people are not too happy about this. They express their unhappiness, and Pilate is spineless, and so he gives in and has Jesus flogged. Roman flogging was brutal. Jesus would have likely been strapped to a post while soldiers took turns whipping him with with leather whips laced with shards of bone, tearing through his skin into his muscles. The descriptions that I've read of flogging are too gruesome to repeat here, but some have died even just from the flogging itself. Well, after this torture, the soldiers twist a crown of thorns and they jam it onto Jesus' head and they give him a purple robe to wrap around him like the ones worn by royalty. And the soldiers mock him, hail King of the Jews. And they hit him. It's as if they're saying, do you know what we do with kings who step outside of their kingdom? We'll show you where the real power is, Jesus of Messiah. 
So the soldiers pounded their wicked chest behind the immunity of Roman authority. Air the Lord Jesus made to support their life is now being used to blaspheme Him. Voices that He formed to praise Him are now used to mock Him. Hands that He built to cultivate the earth, to keep the earth, are being used to beat Him. Animal skins and bone that He created to sustain human life are now being used to whip Him. After Pilate struts his power and feels that his point has been made, this supposed king, sufficiently humiliated, he tells the chief priests, I find no guilt in him. This is the kind of man Pilate is. He would scourge a man he knew was innocent just to prove that he had the power to do so, and just to appease the will of his people. Supposedly hoping that that would have been enough to satisfy the bloodlust of the chief priests. Hoping to send them all away so he could get to the real business. He presents Jesus to the people, covered in blood, His face swollen from the beatings, crowned with thorns, wrapped in a blood-stained purple robe. Pilate thinks he's made his point clear. This is what becomes anyone who opposes Rome. This is what I think of a king of the Jews. Blood-covered, brow-beaten, and barely recognizable. Pilate says, behold the man. While seeing Jesus like this, you might think that that would engender some kind of compassion. You might think that that might engender in the crowd some kind of feeling sorry. but it only emboldens them. Verse 6, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him. We want more. He's still standing there alive. We want him dead. Now, Pilate must have been incredulous at this. He doesn't understand. He says, take him yourselves and crucify him. I don't find any guilt in him. There's a message for us in this. Behold the man. Friend, if Jesus Christ is just a man, then your rejection of him is justified. His teachings were good, perhaps useful, optional. He lacks the true authority to bind those commandments on us. Jesus is just a figure in history, worthwhile to take note of, perhaps even to take notice of, but you'd be right to show Him some indifference. And like Pilate, you'd be warranted to be more interested in the immediate concerns of pleasing those around you and pleasing yourself. You'd be right to do whatever you can to make life as painless as possible, find the path of least resistance, ensure that as many people are happy as you can. Sort of manage your own approval rating with others. Well, that's what Pilate did. He did what was expedient for himself at the time. But friend, I'd be remiss if I didn't warn you of the folly of Pontius Pilate Pilate feared man, and his fear of man had blinded him to the need to fear God. Do you see how the fear of man kept that fool enslaved to the whims of the people? 
Do you see how everything just sort of escalated quickly out of his control until eventually he found himself sentencing to death an innocent man? A man he knew was innocent? I wonder if you have found the fear of man to be as enslaving as that. Have you resisted standing up for the powerless because it wasn't popular? Have you been quiet to injustice simply because you're afraid of what others might think? I could ask it a different way. Are you easily crushed by criticism? Do you avoid criticism at all costs? Are you quick to defend yourself against the perceptions of others? Do you feel trapped by the expectations others have of you? Do you fear appearing disheveled, unintelligent, or like you don't have it all together? Do you often compare yourself to others? Do you find yourself managing the approval of others in your life? Well, if that's the case, Pontius Pilate has a lot to teach you. The fear of man is a deadly fear. It is a cruel slave master, always demanding more bricks with less straw. And the only solution to the wrong kind of fear is the right kind of fear. The only solution to the fear of man is the fear of God. Fearing God is the only path to freedom. And you must train yourself to view God as very big and people as very small. And you must settle in your mind the very fact that most of the things in your life are out of your control. But they are not outside of God's control. And realize anxiety is nothing more than a lack of faith in God. Work to serve others. Work to help them. Pray that the Lord would bring fruit out of your labor and then leave the results, leave the expectations, leave the approvals in God's hands. It seems providence gave Pilate plenty of options to fear God. Verse 7, the Jews answered him, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this, that he's claimed to be a son of a God, he's even more afraid. Are you catching the fact that this Pilate character, who's the one who's supposed to be in charge of everyone in chapter 19, is the one who's afraid? And now... When he learns this man has claimed to be the son of a God, he's even more afraid. A conquered king he could deal with. An insurrectionist among the Jews he could deal with. We get no sense that he's afraid of Barabbas. But the son of a God? The Romans were familiar with the stories of the sons of God's masquerading as men. And Pilate is terrified. That's what he has on his hands. And so he calls Jesus to himself a second time. Scene two, behold the sovereign. Verse nine through 11. He entered his headquarters again and he said to Jesus, where are you from? They said, you Claim to be the son of a God, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? 
Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to kill you, to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been granted to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. The issue here is authority. Who's in charge here? It would seem that Pilate's supposed to be the one who's in charge here. But Pilate seems to be the one who's tossed back and forth by the will of the people. So is it the people who are in charge here? No, not according to Jesus. The, the one who is in authority here is the Lord himself. These, are, these events are happening in the Lord's, under the Lord's hand. This is how the Apostle Peter understood this passage. In the first sermon that he preached in Acts chapter 2, these are Peter's words. This is happening according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God's in control in this room. Pilate asked Jesus, where are you from? They said that you're a son of a God. And Jesus gives no answer. Like a sheep before its shearers is silent, Jesus opened not his mouth. Pilate demanded an answer. This poor guy can't even control a conversation with an accused. He's lost total control. Do you see how more you try and control situations, the more you lose control of it? He demands an answer. Don't you know who I am? I have authority to release you if I want. And I have authority to crucify you if I want. A.W. Pink notes on this verse, how easy for Jesus to have given the lie to Pilate's boast by paralyzing the tongue which he had just uttered such blasphemy. How easy for him to have made a display of his power before this haughty heathen. But instead, he returns a measured answer, equally expressive of his glory. You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. I hope you see this is not the battle of two sovereigns. This is no power struggle going on in this room. Pilate does not have discretion to do anything that he wants. He can't crucify Jesus or set Jesus free. God is the one calling the shots. Pilate is the pawn. Truth be told, the entire Roman emperor, the entire Roman empire is in the hands of the Lord as a tool. God had given Pilate plenty of opportunity to do the right thing, but he fears people, people more than God, and he condemns the Lord of glory to death. Those of us here who have been given authority of some kind ought to take note of our Lord's answer. The Bible teaches in Romans 13, there's no authority except from God. Those in authority have been instituted by God. So if you are a manager of people, an employer of people, if you have direct reports, if you lead people in any way, even as a parent, you have God-given responsibility, God-given responsibility to care for those under your charge. And you ought to often ask yourself, how well am I stewarding that authority? Listen to the Bible's description of God-like authority, God-fearing authority. This is 2 Samuel 23. 
weigh your administration of your authority against these words of King David. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. So may I ask managers, bosses, parents, pastors, and future pastors, is this how our people see our leadership? Fathers and mothers, do your children consider your parentage warm? Like the morning light? Like refreshing rain on a hot day? Do your direct reports think that you are a welcome light breaking through the darkness? Or are you the kind of leader the kind of parent who rules by intimidation, who raises his voice, who demands to be heard, who sends urgent emails with veiled threats. If you're often frustrated by those people under your charge, there's probably two reasons for that. One, your people are idiots. That's one option. But if I may be so bold, it's probable it's the other option, which is that you don't fear God. When one rules justly over man, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light. Fear God. Be the kind of boss that your employees love to work with. The kind of parent your kids love to be around. Well, just as a side note, there's another kind of management and parenting style that is just as devastating as harshness. And that's passivity. If those under your care like you because they know that they can do whatever they want, they can get away with whatever they want. I hope you see, they're the ones in authority. You're not leading them at all. You're not managing them at all. And it's to their detriment. Well, this will soon be known to you if you have to ask them to do anything they don't want to do. You'll learn they don't respect your authority and that that passivity is just as harmful to them as harshness. And so the advice to you is the same. Fear God. Rule justly over them and dawn on them like the morning light. Jesus acknowledges that God is the one pulling the strings in this sentencing But understand that when Jesus, right after that, Jesus does not alleviate human responsibility in the events that are happening at his sentencing. Notice, just like Peter Peter understood in Acts chapter 2, God is the one moving these things along, the things that he predestined to take place. But Jesus understands that does not alleviate human responsibility in this matter. He says, therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility are working together to accomplish God's perfect will. The chief priests bear a greater guilt in Jesus' sentencing, and they still bear that guilt. Scene number three, verse 12 to 16. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. 
mind. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic, Gabbatha. That was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king! They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Poor Pilate. Governor. Sleeps in royalty. Dressed in Roman authority. Is a slave to his own fears. Notice, Pilate sought to release him. Pilate is trapped. He wants Jesus to go free. He's seeking a way to do this. It's like his conscience is screaming to him, Injustice! Innocent man! Set him free! In fact, in Matthew's account of this sentencing, when Pilate sits on that seat of judgment, Pilate's own wife comes to him and warns her husband, have nothing to do with this man, for I have suffered greatly about him in a dream. So Pilate has his own conscience screaming to set him free. He has his own wife telling him, warning him, leave him alone. God was giving this man every reason to fear God and do the right thing. And then comes verse 12. If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. That's the trump card. Double entendre is meant. That's the trump card. The one thing he feared more than anything was Caesar. I mean, it's one thing to fear the people. But Caesar was the most important and and most powerful man on the earth. And now Caesar's brought into the conversation. Caesar's the one who controls Pilate's career. Opposing Caesar would have been political suicide, to say the least. And that was all it took. That was all it took. And so after hearing that, Pilate sits in a judgment seat over Christ. My non-Christian guest, I'm glad you're here. I think you've chosen probably the best day to come to church because there's a message for this in this passage for you. I'm sure you've noticed the kindness of God toward Pilate. How many chances did he get to set Jesus free? Not just that. Don't overlook the fact that God himself became a man, Jesus Christ. And through those circumstances, that man was placed in front of Pilate and engaged Pilate in conversation. Pilate has a conversation with God himself in the flesh. He's been given every chance to fear God and to accept Jesus and to put a stop to these things. So I wonder if you look back on your life, whether or not you might find times where God has come to you and given you chance to fear God and believe in Jesus. Today's just your latest chance. And I hope that you don't choose to reject Jesus like Pilate did. Instead, I hope that you turn from your rebellion and trust Jesus. 
If someone that you know invited you to church today, ask them about this after the service. And if you came on your own, ask one of us, and we'd be happy to share with you about this man, Jesus. But this message is not just for non-Christians. This is for us all. Cornerstone, in your ongoing struggle against the flesh, God comes to you and gives you opportunities to repent. He sends His Holy Spirit through the Word, through the preaching of His Word, and He calls you to acknowledge your sin, to confess your sin to someone else, to turn away from your sin, and to trust in Jesus for forgiveness. And I want you to know the concerns I have for those who have become comfortable in unrepentant sin. And the longer you persist in this, the closer you get to God giving you over entirely to a hardened heart where you would be lost forever. If while I'm saying this, and the Holy Spirit is bringing sins to your mind. Here's what I would ask you to do. Confess those sins to the Lord. Go to the person that you have wronged, that you have sinned against. Confess your sin to them and ask them to forgive you. And commit your life to following Christ in even that area of your life. The tragic plight of Pilate comes to a bitter end. He's ignorant of the arrogance of such a gesture, but he ascends a judgment seat and pretends to adjudicate the Son of God. Bible nerds would have probably picked up on a phrase in verse 13, judgment seat. In the original Greek, it's the word bima. It's the same word the Apostle Paul used in 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So that he may receive each one what is due. What he has done in the body, whether good or evil. You see, unbeknownst to him, Pilate finds himself in the unique situation where he sits in judgment over the one he will face at the judgment. On that seat, what's ruling his heart is not the fear of God, but the fear of Caesar, the fear of the people, the fear of man. And in verse 14... Pilate says more than he knows. Behold, your king. With deep sadness, we read again the indicting words of verse 15. They cried out, away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. What miserable condition, the human heart, to look upon the beautiful Savior, giving Himself for the very sins they are in the act of committing, and saying to Him, away with Him, we have no king but Caesar. Dear skeptical friend, I want to thank you for wanting to rationalize the Scriptures, to make sense of them, to come to the Scriptures with a critical eye. I would commend you in that. If you have found yourself with the excuse of, if God would just come to me and reveal Himself to me, if God would just speak to me, then I would believe, then I would know this book is true. I would just ask, Think about that rationally. Because that excuse presupposes 
that if you were here with these people in John 19, your judgment would have been different than theirs. You would have been more logical. You would have been more rational. You'd have been more open-minded than these people. You're not that arrogant, are you? Isn't it possible that you'd be doing just what they're doing, facing God in the flesh and saying, away with him? We have no king but Caesar. Christ has been presented to you as clearly today as you'll likely ever have him presented to you. What are you going to do with that presentation? I hope you don't add your voice to the crowds. I hope that you receive him and acknowledge that he is your king. The king, the only king who can give you eternal life. What can Caesar give you? Where is the might of Rome today? You can visit the ruins of that great empire for 20 euros. Who fears the power of the Caesars today? We name salad dressing after them. I hope you see that Christ is the true King who stands before you today, no longer in chains and no longer with a blood-stained brow, but in victory over sin and death. And He stands before you very much alive. Very much alive in the hearts and in the lives of those around you and millions more across the globe and millions more across the centuries. This Jesus is alive. This Jesus is your King, whether you recognize it or not. In the end, Cornerstone, we are not inactive members in this audience. Jesus goes to the cross for all of our sin. Isn't that what we sing? Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. How often has Christ presented to us Himself? How often has He revealed Himself to us? And how often have we added our voice to that hellish symphony? Away with Him. We have no king but Caesar. Only our Caesar isn't in Rome. Our Caesar isn't here. When Christ comes and bids us to lay down our lives for His sake, to love the unlovely, to forgive that which is unforgivable, to care for the poor, to speak a word that builds, to encourage, to bear one another's burdens, to resist temptation, you would do well to look to Christ who is on the cross giving His sinless life to purchase your sinful one. Look to Him. Worship Him. Obey Him. I know so many of you have already done this. I was so encouraged yesterday by the outpouring of the selfless love of those who served here at the memorial service for a man that most of you never met. It tells of God's grace in your life that you would spend half of your Saturday, half of your day off, making sure the gradles were provided for, supported, and loved. That's the kind of love of a people who know what Christ has done for them. And they're happy to do a little for the sake of someone else. John 19 shows us that Jesus is no victim. His death was in the hand of Almighty God. And John points to Jesus 
and says, Behold, your King. Please stand for the prayer of confession. At the end of our services, we take elements from the passage that we have just read, and we go to the Lord together as a body, and we confess our sins before the Lord, and we ask Him to forgive us of those sins. And so if you would take a moment with me and pray for the Lord's forgiveness. Almighty God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, We thank You for being so kind to us this morning. We thank You for putting Jesus before us once more. We need Him. We need to see Him. You know that's what we need. And so You've been so gracious to help us see Him today. As we've beheld Your kindness in this way, we understand how unworthy we are of such a kindness. Lord, how often we have felt your Spirit's tug at our hearts to follow Jesus, to obey His commandments, and yet we have added our voice with the crowd and said, away with Him. We have no king but Caesar. Forgive us for grieving your Holy Spirit, for brushing Him aside. Lord, don't take your Holy Spirit from us. Don't leave us hardened in our sins. Melt our hearts with your holy love. Give us faith to trust you. Give us the resolve to repent. Give us the resolve to obey you. Additionally, Lord, would you forgive us for fearing man? more than fearing you. Forgive us for the anxiety that we feel for concerns about approval and expectations, things we can't control. Forgive us this crippling fear that, like Pilate, makes us a victim, makes us unable to help those we're called to help. Enable us to see Jesus' cross as the sign that we've already been accepted by You. And help us to maintain a righteous fear of God, to bow ourselves to His will, to obey His commandments. And we ask that You might open our eyes, that we might behold King Jesus and all of the wonderful inexpressible beauties that are in that man. We pray this in his precious name and for his precious sake.